I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. I think when you think about distributed teams, especially that are globally distributed, it comes down to some of the fundamentals that probably people that have been on this podcast or people certainly listening to this podcast are very familiar with. You know, like people need to be really good communicators. People need to be proactive about, about their work. People need to communicate well. I think those are table stakes and they're even more important table stakes than, they, than they've ever been in this type of environment. Attributes that we've seen that are foundational are a sense of ownership and accountability for people wanting to really own and be accountable for their own work. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Wow, this is one of the strongest episodes we've done in ages. It's with Bastian Bergman, who is the COO of Solston. There is a section around the 10 or 12 minute mark that you are absolutely going to want to share with everyone in your company. You're going to want to re-listen to it a few times and write down the notes. It's all around working with different cultures, managing teams in different cultures and countries, managing around accountability. He really, really shares some fantastic insights based in, in Luxembourg, members of his team operating in about six, seven different countries. You're really going to enjoy this episode. Some of the strongest content around leadership and leading people and managing teams that we've had in our 330 episodes. Uh, we are also sharing all of our episodes now on our Second in Command podcast YouTube channel. So you'll want to subscribe there and share those links as well. We'll see you on the inside. So Bastian, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Excited to be here. Yeah, where are you today? I'm uh, in Luxembourg. Really? Very cool. I live here, yeah. I know. It's, a, it's an odd one, but I do in fact live here. <laughs> How long have you been there? A little over two years. I was there about two, two and a half years ago. My wife and I did like a seven or an eight uh, country tour of, of um, kind of Western Europe and Luxembourg had always been on my list. Yeah. And I remember kind of driving in and go, we, we were kind of driving in along 
this, the, the old city was kind of on the left and we would have been on the highway on the right. And we were driving in and I just was like, holy fuck, what is this place? It's extraordinary. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Really, really beautiful. How, how come, why was it on your list in the first place? Like, how did you, how did you come across it? Um, well, it, it actually, strangely enough, started because of Liechtenstein. There was a skier, gosh, and I can't remember his freaking name. There was a great, I used to ski race, but there was a skier back in the 80s from Liechtenstein. Um, and I remember going like, where the heck is Liechtenstein? And I kind of like opened up Western Europe on a map and I saw that. And then I saw Luxembourg and they just kind of both stuck in my head as like these two very random small countries that yep. I had to go and see in Europe. <laughs> um, so that was it. That was the, that was the reason. That's funny. That's a pretty good reason to visit a country. <laughs> right? Yeah, it was great. We really, we really enjoyed it there. We actually, we were, sadly, we were only there for like a day, but it's actually on our list to go back and spend time there. That's, it's because I'm, I'm originally German and people always, we used to live in Berlin. My wife's Luxembourgish, so that's where we have two kids. We, uh, it's not that we picked a random place on the map and you're like, where do we, where could we go? It's like, there's, you know, family here and um, it's a little more uh, methodical, but you know, people ask me, it's like, well, what is it like there? And I tend to say, you get the best of, of, of all of the worlds around you. you. You still get some of whatever's left of the German efficiency. You get, you get the French influence on the food, but you get it with Belgium kindness. So you don't have to deal with the French attitude. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. To describe it. <laughs> that's amazing. And for anybody who's in North America and they haven't been to Europe, get your ass over to Europe and stop like thinking the world revolves. Cause like, there's just so much over there and you're, you're right. I love the whole, like, the Belgians are just nice, and the French really do need a little bit of a course yeah, correction. Yep. <laughs> the French, the French just need some 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 Canadian parents to raise them and say, "Come on, be, be nicer to people." <laughs> I like that. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, the French food is just spectacular. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. It's interesting. I actually was coaching a client based in Ohio uh, two years ago, a CEO, and and their COO is a member of the COO Alliance. And on one of our coaching calls, he said, I said, how's it going? And he goes, well, one of the weird things this week, I just lost a key executive to some company based in Luxembourg. And he's like, where the heck is Luxembourg? <laughs> and I realized how flat the world truly is when companies are losing talent because we're now so remote, right? Companies are remote. We're willing to hire anywhere. But that was the first I'd ever heard of somebody in Luxembourg hiring somebody based in Ohio and just saying, yeah, you don't have to move here. You get to be based there. Are you guys a global company as well? Yeah, we're, we're, we're a global company, fairly distributed. And it's part of it is by design. Part of it is how we grew as a company organically. Part of it is necessity, building a company and scaling a company through COVID and the pandemic. And I guess changing expectations in the talent market and trying to right trying to reconcile all of these. But we're headquartered in uh, Minnesota and Minneapolis. That's where the company is is uh, is headquartered. A good chunk of our team is there. Uh, we have a fairly big office in Berlin, Germany. That's where we originally started building and uh, building the company and recruited the the original team. But then we're fairly remote. There's a bunch of people on the East Coast, New York, uh, Philadelphia, North Carolina, and then over in Europe, anywhere from Sweden, uh, Helsinki, Germany, UK, Spain, uh, all the way down to Romania. So we're fairly, fairly global. Okay. I want to, I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. And, and just so we can get some perspective, you, um, as the COO of the company, um, you've been building the organization for about six years now. Mm -hmm. How many employees approximately do you have globally? And why do you tend to to hire in so many different markets like do you hire a lot of the the tech people out of romania or do you hire the you know designers from somewhere else like is that geographically based or is it very random and it's all over the board 
Yeah, it's a really, really good question. So we're just over 60 people. We're 62 people at the at the moment. Um, still growing, looking to hire. So we're we're slowly, slowly expanding and growing. And I think to answer the second part of your question, our strategy to where we hire what type of talent has definitely evolved as the company has evolved. Um, I think in the early stages, it was very much about where are we, but also where can you get the best talent for the job that needs to be done in a specific role, in a specific capacity, especially given what we're what we're doing, working at the intersection of AI and um, and clinical psychology and really trying to build technology that um, truly understands consumers as human beings and not just as dots and numbers in the system. Um, there's there's a lot of like specialized talent that that goes into that. And I think as we've evolved now, we're we're trying to be a lot more methodical around who do you hire, who do you hire where. So it's it's changed organically a little bit. But to answer the question specifically, Berlin specifically is in, and has been and still is incredible for engineering related talent, specifically back end, front end talent. Um, there's a lot of good data science work that that's also coming out of that hub. Romania is very much focused on data science and data engineering and only had incredible experiences when it comes to the talent there, both from a um, hard skill set, but also just really good people, just good people to work with, fun people to work with. And then from there, it's it's been quite a bit of where can you get the best talent for the for the job that that needs doing. I think as we're going to continue to scale, we're, we're going to make an attempt and strive for streamlining and focusing that a little bit more simply to keep complexity in check. That's that's one, but also allow us to create environments that actually facilitate and go back to facilitating in-person conversation and in-person collaboration more so that you're getting back to a world where we we collaborate, we have that human experience, and there's a ton of alignment and actually efficiencies that that come from that. I think, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, where we stand on the spectrum of people are fully remote, five days you can be anywhere versus, you know, five days in an office. I don't think it's a binary thing. And it's every company has to decide like what's best for for them. And we as a company we're we're somewhere in the middle where we we value and we appreciate and we believe in the flexibility and giving people autonomy, but we certainly see and understand and have experienced the upsides of people being in the same place for specific tasks and and specific conversations that technology, as good as it is, like you and I on this podcast, right? Like this is great. We'd probably have an even greater time if we were in, I don't know, I think you were, you said you're in Austin right now. If we were, you know, hanging out over a coffee right now in Austin together in the same room. So well, and we'd also have more opportunities to bump into each other more casually throughout the week where we can have the casual conversations that are inspired by whatever we're working on in that moment that we don't necessarily book a Zoom meeting to then do, right? It's kind of like, I'm thinking about something, I bump into you in the, at the cough, getting coffee and we chat about it for four or five minutes and we go for lunch together and we chat about stuff that never happens over Zoom because you don't casually say, hey, Bastian, let's grab coffee together over Zoom. It just doesn't happen. And yeah, I think there's something missing. I was going to ask you about that as well. So when you're managing a global team, what skills do you need or what skills does your company need to be able to not so much manage and oversee, but like to build a cohesive team and to build a culture, you know, globally and remote? What are some of the skills? And can you speak tactically 
on how you actually can lead people and build a company like that as well. Like, don't go high level, kind of get into the weeds with it. What do you do? What are the tools you use? Yeah, it's really, really, really good question. So I think when you think about distributed teams, especially that are globally distributed, comes down to some of the fundamentals that, you know, probably people that have been on this podcast or people certainly listening to this podcast are very familiar with, you know, like people need to be really good communicators. People need to be proactive about, about their work. Um, people need to communicate well. I think those are table stakes and they're even more important table stakes than they, than they've ever been in this type of environment. Attributes that we've seen that are foundational are a sense of ownership and accountability for people wanting to really own and and be accountable for their own work. And and I'll, I'll speak to the tactical things of why and and also and how we how we try to facilitate that. And then the other big component I think that gets underestimated quite a bit is an understanding of actual cultural differences because because they matter because that bleeds over directly into how we communicate, how we run meetings, how we write with how we write to each other, especially when we're not in person, we can't read facial expressions a lot, and we're sending slack messages. And you know, all of a sudden, I, i've I've been I've been at the receiving end of that where we've had a you know couple of employees, um you know, maybe in California that it happened it happened to me a couple of times with Californians, where I'll send messages of something that's completely normal to me, and we're it's very factual, very just, this is what, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what we, what we need to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then people come back with, well, that felt very terse or that felt very confrontational. And it's, and I, I didn't have that perspective. Well, why? And it's just cultural differences that bleed into how we, how we communicate. So those two, those two are paramount. Um, on a very tactical level, how we, how we facilitate the latter especially in a distributed world, we try to bring the team together on regular occasions. And we typically have an annual offsite where the whole company gets together in a location for minimum three days. That's that's a must. Like last year, we did it in Austria in the mountains. And it's it's expensive. And there's it's a logistical nightmare. But it pays huge dividends from how do you create that shared culture? How do you start to foster that type of understanding? It's Culture of a company is is more the accumulation of all the little expressed behaviors and what we observe and how we treat each other rather than here's the 10 rules that we write on our on a poster that we put up in our office and that's and that's what we live by. And that's the challenge with the remote world is all of that, exactly to your point earlier, the coffee, you know, conversation, all of that all of a sudden goes away. So how do you really facilitate shared culture and shared identity in a world where serendipity is really hard to come by and you have to go, oh, I had just had this thought. I'm going to book a meeting with Cameron for Zoom and I'm going to find a time on the calendar. And then it's four days down the road because everyone's busy. And then what would have been a four minute chat in the office, all of a sudden it's next week we're talking about something and the whole natural component to it, the serendipity of it just went went out the window. By really bringing people together. So we do the whole company annually. We do... Um, team-based, so more like smaller within within Europe or within America, at least on a quarterly on a quarterly basis, where teams come together cross-functionally too. So subsets of the bigger team, and then individual teams have full autonomy to say, let's say our engineering team, for example, they just literally booked an engineering offsite or onsite 
in our Berlin office where they're bringing other people together. Three people have to fly in from other parts of Europe and they're spending a week together in Berlin and there's absolutely budget for that. So we try to facilitate a lot of it that way. The second big component is more in a lived day-to-day where as managers and as leaders, you have to be very mindful and very sensitive to those cultural differences and help people through conversation try to understand the other side and try to see that perspective. It's, you know, my example back with the encounters I had with, you know, a couple of people in California, like they need to then understand, well, where's this coming from? And I need to understand, okay, well, why is it being perceived that way? And how do I maybe come to the conversation a little bit differently, but also how they're dropping some of their initial biases that they have where it's not an attack. It's literally a person communicating with a different cultural background in what is normal to them for how for how you communicate. And I think just building awareness uh, through constant conversation and giving examples and making that an explicit item for managers in this type of world is, is vital. The other big piece around ownership and, and, uh, and accountability is, I think, it honestly, that piece is vital to success of any company, even if we're all in the office together. If you if you really talk about high functioning teams and high functioning organizations, but when you're remote, you have to be able to trust the person next to you to do their part even more, because you you can't be there all the time and you shouldn't be there all the time and no one wants to be micromanaged. So people when they you know seeing things, picking up slack, doing their part, taking ownership and accountability of that is. Is paramount. So what we try and do as a leadership team, we have a biweekly session where the whole leadership team comes together, all disciplines, and we always run through what are our current metrics as a for that discipline. So overall as a company, then discipline by discipline, and each discipline goes, these are our metrics. This these are the three key initiatives that we're driving for the next two weeks with specific outcomes that we want to impact with that. And then two weeks later, the same group gets together and we go, did we drive these outcomes? What did we learn from these initiatives? And what worked, what worked, what didn't work? What did we learn? And now how does that translate into the next two-week cycle? And it's being discussed amongst the whole leadership group so that there's shared transparency and learning across all of the disciplines because you have to work together cross-functionally really, really well. And that's true for any company. But facilitating that is even more important in this type of distributed remote global organization. And especially when you're dealing with different time zones, like when you go from West Coast, California to the furthest east we are is yeah, Helsinki and Romania. So that's was that GMT plus three. So you're talking like 10 hours. So creating that overlap, you're sometimes operating within like two to three hour windows in a day where the whole company is actually online. So I've had conversations with you know some of our leaders and managers, and and I constantly do that depending on where people are. You rejigger your own calendar and say, okay, how do I block my own time so that I'm actually available in certain parts of the day for the people that then come online so that I'm doing the work that I could do any time of the day in those specific parts so I'm free other parts of the day. You just covered so much solid, really, really important information. I want anybody who's listening or if you're watching this on our YouTube channel, this is the section you're going to need to re-listen to three or four times and write down the actual parts that Bastian mentioned. And I would even forward and time block this section to everybody on your leadership team and have them listen to this as well, especially if you manage anybody globally. One of the key things you talked about, and it's it's so rarely talked about, 
is the cultural differences between people in different countries. I just heard recently, and I think it was Japan, that the Japanese don't even understand sarcasm. And so many North Americans seem to think sarcasm is funny. Sarcasm doesn't scale. They don't understand the jokes in sarcasm. And when you try to do that with people globally, they take it completely wrong. And then in my first book that I wrote, gosh, 12 years ago called Double Double, I talked about this one sentence as an example. And the sentence is, I didn't say you were beautiful. And if you read that sentence and put the emphasis on each of the six words differently, you have six completely different sentences. Like, I didn't say you were beautiful versus I didn't say you were beautiful or I didn't say you were beautiful. That's six words. Like, and then you do it into multiple languages. Like, you're completely screwed. So it's amazing that you guys are so focused on cultural differences, talking about cultural differences and understanding. Second part that I hinged on. Back in 2003, I was asked by Fortune magazine, how do you hold your people accountable? And I said, I don't. I hire accountable people. And it sounds like that's exactly where you guys line up as well. If you want a high-functioning company, you hire people that are accountable. You hire people that do their jobs. And then you just give them the space to do it. And you give them the resources and you help remove obstacles. And I think it's really powerful that people understand that and bring that in. Um, it's really, really powerful. And I also love the remotes, the quarterly remotes, the annual stuff like that as well. I'm working with a, t a company right now that's based in, in Europe as well called Kinguin. And Kinguin kind of touches in and around the space that you're in in the gaming industry. They make a lot of the stuff that is sold in games, um, you know, 100 million plus in revenue kind of globally in their operation. But I want to talk, I want you to tell us a little bit more about Solston, what your company does, how you're involved in the gaming industry and what you're doing there. And then we can kind of dive in more. Yeah, happy, happy to. So in its simplest form, think of Solson as consumer insights for any company out there that has a direct relationship with a consumer slash a human being and consumer insights for, for the modern day. And what I mean by that is for the longest time when not just gaming, you know, developers or gaming companies, but any, any brand, any consumer brand, any company that, that makes an experience for people. We've been treating customers as numbers and dots in a system. We talk about, you know, our customers in terms of demographic data. You know, we're we're making a video game for 35 to 45 year old men in America. And I always say to our, you know, customers that for the first time that talk to Sultz and say, that's like saying 35 to 45 year old men in America all drink the same beer and they all eat the same type of burger. When you give that example, you, you typically get smiles and headlines like, yeah, that's that's not that's bullshit. <laughs> like, it's a lot of strong preferences when it comes to, you know, the food we consume. But for some reason, when we talk about experiences, when we talk about marketing, we revert back to these stereotypes or we revert back to demographic data, maybe some like high level affinity data or some behaviors that we can observe about our customers. And the problem with all of those data categories and data points is they actually don't tell you anything about who the person is and they actually don't tell you anything about why they're doing the things that they're that they're doing there's this there's this meme on the on the internet a few months ago i don't know if you've seen it where there's a, a persona that was based on demographics and was kind of like born in uh, i forget what it was like 1948 uh lives in the uk lives in a castle married twice wealthy <laughs> And then you go on the one, the one hand that perfectly fits, like that's literally that person is King Charles. And then the person that also perfectly fits is Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> so the, the, the Prince of Darkness. And when you just look at the demographics, you go, oh, that's the same person. That's the same, we're, that's the same consumer. They want the same thing. We're giving them the same experience. 
And then if you tell people, well, one's King Charles and one's the Prince of Darkness, you go, oh, yeah, that's they're probably going to have different tastes or different things that they actually going to latch onto. And that's that's in a nutshell what Saltzen is, is we allow our customers to go all the way upstream, away from demographic data, away from pure behavior to actually understand what we like to say, the human being behind their consumers. So we measure very deep and holistic psychological profiles while keeping people anonymous. So it's really about, think of it as a 360 degree view of who's your ideal audience? What are they motivated by? What are their needs and desires? How can you design to that? How can you speak to that to actually create experiences in a world where consumers are just flooded with choice and optionality and our attention's being pulled in all sorts of different directions. So how do you how do you actually stand out? But how do you create experiences and provide experiences to consumers that can actually retain people over long periods of time? Because that's the baseline for actually having a successful, sustainable business rather than having customers churn all the time and you have to fight, you know, fight for having them come back and spend um, expensive marketing budget and user acquisition money on them. Hey there, Cameron here. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We're going to get right back into it in just a second, but let me ask you a quick question. Are you a COO or a second in command tasked with helping the company hit and exceed its growth goals? Having spent decades of my life dedicated to this role, I know one of the secrets to growth is to surround yourself with like-minded people also pushing and striving to go where you want to go. It's why as a listener of this podcast, I want to officially invite you to the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. We're the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. When you're a part of this peer group, you'll get access to unprecedented support, guidance, and resources to grow your company's bottom line, improve your ability to streamline processes, connect with other top seconds in command to assist you and bring out your greatest potential, and so much more. Go to www.cooalliance.com to see if you qualify. It's where you can also see other members and the results of the program, as well as our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if the group can be a right fit for you. Once again, it's www.cooalliance.com. Now back to the show. Who are your end clients typically? Who do you sell to? Yeah, so right now we work with, you name it, the biggest biggest of the big all the way down to the smallest video game developers, publishers, uh, Activision Blizzard, for example, EA, uh, Mythical Games, you name it. And we also do a little bit of work outside of video games. So we work with brands, work with Ancestry.com in the past, GoFundMe. Uh, we work with Peloton, for example, on really thinking through connected fitness and how do you actually build truly how to helping them realize a vision of an, an immersive gamified connected fitness platform. So those, and we typically work with either the product teams directly. So VPs of product, heads of product that are actually building the experiences, um, the marketing teams directly around how do we really tune and align our messaging with our target audience? 
what creatives, what visual assets, brand pillars, brand positioning, go-to-market strategies based on the data that we're able to deliver. And then the third big um, user group of our data is um, naturally consumer insights teams and research teams, uh, more so outside of gaming than within within video gaming. So that has to do with uh, the structure of the industries and how these companies typically typically are set up. Wow, you guys are massively on trend in terms of the next 50 years as well, considering so much is happening in this space. Like online gaming is only 15 years old, 18 years old, maybe, right? When when was the whole like per you know the the the, the multiplayer gaming? When is how long has that been around? So a lot of it really, really took off with Facebook games and the, and then the shift to mobile. There's there's been a couple of different shifts before, but when mobile really catalyzed gaming and jump started as an entire industry, because that's what made it mainstream all of a sudden. Because you were still, it was a fairly big industry before that, but not everyone had a gaming PC, not everyone had a console. There's upfront costs that go with that. And all of a sudden you bring video games to the mobile device that people already have in their pockets anyway. That just jump-started the industry. It also bridged the age gap, right? Where all of a sudden, because you're on mobile and you can do multi-person gaming, now you're hitting the 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, versus the, the the gaming consoles was really kind of like a sub-30-year-old market, right? I mean, I guess that's grown with those people that were 20 and now they're 35, but... Com- completely. You you're nailed it. And what's interesting is, just to give you a couple, a couple of stats there, the fastest-growing consumer segment in terms of demographics on a percentage year over year uh, growth basis are silver surfers quote unquote in terms of like adopting games they're growing the <laughs> they're they're growing they're growing the fastest i just pointed to my hair as silver if somebody's <laughs> listening and not on their youtube channel <laughs> so so that that's the fastest growing you know segment on a just on a percentage basis obviously granted the baseline's a little bit smaller than for some of these other groups but Gaming is enjoyed. It's it's a it's an activity and it's a medium enjoyed literally by everybody. When you talk about, for example, brands or non non endemics and companies outside of video gaming, they're looking into that industry and it's such a different world. And they go, well, three point two billion people globally play a video game every single day. So you're talking about seventy five percent of the people that are actually connected to the internet by a mobile device. So. When you when you start to think about video games not as an isolated form of entertainment that you consume, but as a platform and what it could do for your business and how much time people spend there, I think it's close to forty percent. People spend more close to forty percent more time in video games on a weekly basis compared to watching TV. So when we're thinking about evolving consumer touch points and where time is spent, where money is spent. Gaming is outpacing TV and the more traditional channels by far. And you have social, so you have social media up there. The challenge with social media, and this is where for brands, gaming and those immersive worlds are going to be so powerful and impactful in the next 20, 30 years, because everything's going to move towards that. Social media is a one way street. It's a very, it's a passive activity that we consume. Gaming is a two way street. It's an active activity. And that's what makes it so engaging that there's an emotional connection there. That's what makes it so immersive. And that's why people spend a lot more time there. That's why people spend more money there. That's why the crossover from, I think it's 86% of people that have bought a virtual item in a video game have actually purchased the corresponding physical item too. Okay. So I want to ask you about this. And, and this is um, going to come as a, a fairly kind of layman's question who 
I remember when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we started to do a fair amount of product placement and kind of barter for product placement with the film and the TV and the movie industry, where we would get our, our 1-800-GOT-JUNK trucks in movies and, and on TV shows. How do brands work with gaming? Is it product placement? Is it getting your product in there? Or, or is, it, is it buying the data? Or is it cross more? Like, how, give us like two or three short examples that people can start thinking about strategically. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And um, I wish I wish my book was coming out in a couple of months because then you could I, I could actually quote all of it. But there's um, there's there's a lot that's coming out on that that, you know, I'm working on in the background. But to give you some initial examples, you know, the product, think of it as um, activation, monetization and engagement just at a very high level, those, those three avenues. And then there's different manifestations of what you can do. The product placement is, I think, on the that's kind of like the entry point, the easiest thing of what you could do. You could place your product. Louis Vuitton did this, I want to say 10 years ago, 12 years ago, in one of the biggest games in the world, League of Legends. You guys might have seen it. The trophy case that you have for when you win in League of Legends, your team wins the actual trophy. The trophy case is the Louis Vuitton suitcase, and then it opens up. So they, that's one of the most famous examples that's been around for, for a long, long time. Um, Mountain Dew had, I think like three, four years ago, uh, digital versions of Mountain Dew and then of another drink that they created specifically for gamers within uh, within Call of Duty. So those examples have been around for, for a long, long time. What's actually even more impactful, and this is where you can add layers of complexity that, to that, is when you start to integrate with the actual game itself and partner with the game developers or make your own game outright where you start to get into the actual monetization. Now I have a video game where um, uh, there's a, there's actually really cool as a social impact company. It's an agency called Worthy. They partnered with a game developer called Tilting Point. Um, they actually did the same with PUBG. Uh, PUBG Battle Battlegrounds is a really big game that maybe some people might be familiar with. And they had an initiative um, focused on child malnutrition. So you have these rescue packs, um, these these nutrition packs that you could you could buy. And what they would do in the game, gamers could play and actually buy the digital items, and it would help them progress in the game as they were playing. What was it? It was SpongeBob Krusty Cookoff. So it was a cooking game. So they would make those in-app purchases. And for every purchase, every nutrition pack that they would buy that would help them advance in the game, it translated directly to a nutrition pack that was donated for children in need to fight malnutrition. And I think it was within the first month upon launch, something like 90,000 nutrition packets were donate, generated and then donated to children in, in need for the social cause around child child malnutrition. And then you you kind of progress down there into to companies where from, from integrations, Burberry is a really good example, by the way, too, with Mythical Games, where they actually launched an avatar together in that with Mythical in that game. So the actual characters, along with virtual clothing items of the new Burberry collection, those avatars, those, those characters sold out in 22 seconds. They literally generated $200,000 in revenue in 22 seconds. And I think more importantly, even than the revenue for Burberry, it opened the door to a consumer group that they need, they need with a touch point. And those consumers don't go into, they don't go downtown. They don't go to your Burberry store on high street and they don't go try on the trench coat if they haven't had that touch point 
in their natural environment where they're spending the time, spending the time anyway. So there's a lot of, a lot of really good examples out there. This is another great example of why companies need to actually learn from Gen Z. And, um, you know, Gen Z, like the sub 26 year olds don't have the wisdom and experience to run companies, but they absolutely have the wisdom of their demographic. And even the second half of the Gen Y cohort, kind of the 44 to 26 year olds, you know, you go from 26 to 35 year olds, they're so immersed in gaming. We need to be bringing them into our companies to give us ideas and listen to them and then take those ideas and bring them in strategically. So I love, I love some of your thoughts here. I want to flip the question a little bit and talk to you. You know, you've you've not only been the COO of Solston, but you're also a co-founder of Solston. And I would imagine then that you and the CEO are close friends or, you know, have certainly had a good friendship during this time. What's it like being a co-founder of a company and operating as the COO uh, versus being the co-founder of the company and operating as the CEO? So my my partner and I, my co-founder and I have been friends for 21 years. So we've known each other for the better better half of, of, of our lives. We, uh, we actually met in high school when we were 17. I was a foreign exchange student in the States back then. And, uh, was a German and American met in French class. That's it's, it's either the start of a bad joke or, or some, something like this. So that's where, that's where we met. And I think the, a big piece of, you know, my personal experience being COO and a co-founder in, in this is the friendship that is underneath that that makes it extra special because you get to you get to go to not, you don't even get to go to work you get to create and build something together with one of your closest friends and i think throughout that process we've become even better friends which is amazing because it could also could very well have gone the the other the other way but we've become even better business partners we've become even better friends throughout that whole process and i think the co-founder and CEO and co-founder and COO, it depends on who are the the people that actually fill the roles in terms of what that means for their relationship and what they focus on and how they and how they work 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 with each other. And I would think that is that because you've been co-founders and then the best friends for 21 years, it does two things. First one is it gives you an unfair advantage because you have so much trust and so much communication and you like each other. Very similar to Brian and I building 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He was my best man at my wedding three months before I started working with him to build the company. So the trust was implicit. The friendship was strong. We liked hanging out together. That was a real unfair advantage. But secondly... It's also very hard to build a company and go through a lot of these. I can't imagine that the six years of building it together has been super easy. There's got to have been conflicts. There's got to have been arguments and fights around stuff, whether it's to build the company or just different positions you're coming in from. How do you manage through those relationship issues with each other to keep the relationship strong and to, to scale the company? Is there anything that you do specifically to continue to like each other? Fully agree on that first part. The the trust the trust is implicit. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have gone on this journey in the first place. And a lot of it is was the 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 idea for Solston is my my co-founder is the he's the brainchild. He's the brain behind all of this. It's he spent his whole career leading up to this point. So I was fortunate enough to be to be the first one to be invited to to the to the to the party. So that's I feel grateful to to be on this journey because it's a special journey. The the second component, and we can talk about some 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 tactical stuff there too if it's useful. But how do you maintain that relationship despite having having to have hard conversations? I think that's that's actually the first part. That's where you start. You have to realize that 
you have to have hard conversations with each other. And if you can't have that, what kind of friendship do you have in the first place? So there's a bigger question there where there might be some reckoning for some people. If you're actually honest to yourself, can I, if I can have that conversation with a person that I consider close, what does that say about the relationship that we have in this other part of our, of our, of our life together? So I think it's that that's the first part is knowing that, that that is an inevitable, it's normal and it's healthy and it's part of growing. So you, you normalize it. The second thing is actually something I learned from my co-founder is a principle that, because he's a clinical psychologist by background that, that comes from that field, it's called object constancy, where you know that, especially because the trust is there, you've known each other for so long, you look at that other person in a constant manner. So even if we're having conversation and he disagrees with me and he, you know, I, maybe I did something that I was unaware of, or I screwed up or whatever it was, and he has to talk to me about that that I still look at him as, this is my partner. It comes from a good place. It comes from a place of care because we need to get better. And he's doing right by me to talk about this. But that doesn't make him a bad person for bringing it up. And I I shouldn't take it personally and let my ego get in the way because it might be a very uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable conversation right now. So, And those two aspects are, are related. Um, and I think... If, if people can have honest conversations around this with their partners and with their other executives, you have a great foundation. And then honestly, the third thing that we do, we, we, carve, we try and really carve out time, even if it's during a week, little moments where we, we can be the friends that we are. It's, you know, there's maybe like 15 minutes on at the end of a Zoom call, we talk about hockey because we love to talk about hockey or we, we, I don't know, we tell each other an inappropriate joke because there needs to be space for that. Or sometimes even after a victory, like we both like to drink scotch every now and then, like we'll actually get on a call together or do it in person if we can and just, just reflect and enjoy that moment together and hang out. And one thing that we do kind of like how the, all the, the whole team gets together that we do for the two of us, we do a founder offsite once a year where we take three to four days and we leave the business, we get together. And the first day is we don't even talk about work. It's we're processing and we're there as friends and we're, we're hanging out, we're skiing together, we're doing all this other stuff to give the brain a rest. And then the work conversations come up naturally. So I think, but it's, it takes a lot of investment and work into the relationship. Like none of this stuff comes comes easy. No, and I, I talk about that in my book, The Second in Command. I talk about date night, where the CEO and COO need to have date night, time away from the business, time away from the kids to reconnect, like you're just talking about. I have also had a lot of my CEOs and COO um, teams work with a marriage counselor that I've introduced them to. She's a high power marriage counselor who works with Wall Street power executives and investment bankers and hedge fund owners and their spouses. And when she works with the CEO and CEO on their communication issues and their bullshit and their childhood trauma and their communication, fuck, it goes to the moon. But like, we need to work on that stuff. I want to get a quick soundbite from you. And then I'm going to do two final questions. But how do you work with developers? Like these are this, this unique, they're almost like creatives. Like you need to know how to work with creatives. How do we work with developers? How do we talk to them as this brand of human that they are? Or can we bulk them all together as that one thing? Or do we need to treat them more as individuals? Any, any thoughts around working with developers? My first question would be, where's the, where are the developers from? Right. <laughs> it's back yeah. To, yeah. It's back right. to the cultural context. Like I can, you know, I can tell you in our company, um, me think we're, so we're, our developer team is like, there's just in terms of nationalities, 
Brazil, France, Belarus, Romanian, uh, Ukraine, America, like it's all over the place. So you can't eat. And this, this is where given like the type of work that we also do as a company, Sultan, like the same principles we apply internally is like, I, I would treat them as the human beings that they are and not as the generalized, oh yeah, it's here's how you treat developers, you know? So I think there's some general principles that you can use, but otherwise I would always encourage to really get, start to understand who they are as people. As people, yeah, not, I agree. Not box them into, oh yeah, this is your average backend developer and hence right. they're going to like X, Y, and Z. Yeah, makes sense. All right, last kind of comment before I do our wrap question. You've gone through a couple of funding rounds. You've raised, I think, 22 million in your Series B. What's it like raising money and how does it change a company for the better and for the worse? Can you give us any any lessons or sound bites around uh, the raise? Fundraising is it's kind of like when you're when you're building a technology company these days or at least pre pre COVID or early, early phase of COVID. You have to make a decision for your company and say, well, I, we, we looked at venture capital as almost like doping. It's like we're in the Tour de France. Everyone's everyone's juicing. Do we want to compete and not juice, or do we would just want to do, do the doping like everyone else and and try and compete on that on that same level? And I think the the thing with fundraising is and and funding once you have it, it's great once you have it. The process of doing it is a full time job. You have to like fully focus on it as an essential part of your business. And I think that's also the big the big risk to it, because the reality is it always takes longer than you think it does. It's never going to work on the timeline that you need it to. And it takes you away and it takes your focus away from actually working in slash on your actual business and building the organization and building the company. Because it is such a full-time job. It is such a demanding job. How it changes the the company itself, I think it fundamentally doesn't other than that you have more resources at your disposal to do more. The thing is with more the more money you raise the higher the stakes go and the higher the expectations become that are placed on you to deliver so i think that's that's something that you know everyone out there raising capital or considering raising capital should keep in mind is like there's always this advice of raise more raise a little bit more than you think right now than you need because you're always going to need a little bit more and i would tend to agree with that but venture capital and fundraising is definitely not a silver bullet towards success. Like, especially in this climate right now, cash flow is amazing. If you have an actual business that generates revenue and you can you can start to scale profitably to a certain extent, that's extremely empowering because that means you're you're in control of your business and you're in control of your destiny because you're thriving off of your own cash. And that that gives you that gives you leverage. Yeah, I agree. I was um, leading the strategic planning meeting for a company called Hootsuite about 10 years ago. And I remember sitting with Ryan Holmes and his team and Ryan kind of banged his fist on the coffee table. And he said, we need to start speaking about building a profitable company and stop speaking about raising more venture funding. Like we need to actually build the best business. And I agree with you a thousand percent. All right. I want you to go back to the 21, 22 year old Bastion and give yourself some advice. <laughs> what advice would you give the younger you that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? Trust yourself. Mm. Can you expand on Trust, that a little bit? Yeah, I think I think when you're when you're young, you know, not everyone's blessed with you know being 18, 19, and a knowing exactly what they want to do, want to do, and b having the confidence that they should pursue that. And 
I think, you know, I personally had a lot of ideas around what I wanted to do early on. Like I, I played professional hockey back in the day, injuries pivoted towards maybe college is a good idea. Uh, I originally, I'm from a journalism and media background. Like that's what, that's what I worked in as a 13 year old. That's, and that's, that's also writing and all this stuff. It's always where my, my heart has been, but I never originally pursued a career in that, like pursuing journalism. Um, I always had a very keen interest in psychology early on. And it's, you know, your parents help you or try and help you with the perspective that they have as, as much, as much as they can. But I think early on, if I, if I reflect back to that, it's, Trust yourself with your with your instincts and your gut and and related to that, give yourself the space to experiment. Try something out. And even if you realize like, okay, that it's not it, you can pivot. You can you can like you don't have to know it all in advance to go, but trust your instincts and and try something and go and go for it, honestly. I love that. Bastian Bergman, the COO for Solston. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. And thanks for zooming in from Luxembourg to do so. Really appreciate the time and the insights today. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Cameron. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.